Good morning. It is Tuesday, July 4th, 2017. Happy Independence Day. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, we're going to be visiting with Deacon Guadalupe Rodriguez of the Diocese of Austin. He's the co-director of Diaconal Formation, and we're going to talk about that, and specifically, we're going to talk about Project Stephen. We want to welcome everyone listening to us on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn, Bryan College Station, and also welcome to our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco, and also our station in Palestine, KINF 107.9 FM. Welcome to everyone, and happy Independence Day, as I said. Today, we are airing a pre-recording. Thaddeus and I wanted to sleep in on July 4th. Yeah, so you mean it's not July 4th when we're recording it, but when we're playing it, it actually is July 4th is what you're saying. Well, I'm hoping it will be. Yeah, we're hoping. (laughs) Yes, we will air this on July 4th, so everybody will listen to us on July 4th. And then go out and celebrate Independence Day. Exactly. What have you got planned for the 4th? Well, as of the moment of this recording, Deacon Mike, we don't have any firm plans in the Romanski household for what we're doing on July 4th. But I'm sure between now and July 4th, we'll have figured something out. You good, will be told. A good chance it'll involve something with my my extended in-laws. Family, ah. Which is always a good time. Always a large time. Well, I hope Some barbecue, maybe. Has... Good yes. chance. Some sparklers. Maybe some fireworks. So Very good. Well, I hope everyone has plans to celebrate the 4th in style and uh, appreciate the freedoms that we do have in this country. Uh, we'll talk about that in a little bit. I wanted to mention uh, St. Anthony's is having a consecration to the Blessed Virgin Mary this summer. We're using the 33 Days to Morning Glory from Father Gately, and uh, we will do it as a retreat. So beginning July 13th, we're going to meet each Thursday from 6 to 8 and um, join together and ponder the readings from Father Gately's book and uh, prepare to consecrate the parish to, uh, on the Feast of the Assumption, which is on August 15th, which will be 33 days from when we start. Hey, you guys planned that out pretty well. It's amazing how that works when you read the instructions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which, being a guy, is rare for me to read the instructions. So it's helpful <laughs> that someone pointed out, hey, they've got this all planned right, out. right, right. But I did want to talk a little bit about July 4th, um, and uh, the church has celebrated the fortnight of freedom, the two weeks leading up to July 4th, with an emphasis on the Feast of St. Thomas More and Bishop Fisher. And uh, the question always arises, why do we celebrate the celebration of Thomas More? Because... What does it tell us about our faith if we focus on uh, his life and ultimately his death? Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a good reminder to think of why he was put to death. Why was he put to death? 
When did he live? Give us some context on who who was uh, St. Thomas More. St. Thomas More was uh, a contemporary of Henry VIII. And uh, he was asked to change his faith so that the king could be named the head of the church. Sign the Act of Supremacy. That's what he was asked to do. Very much so. And uh, the reasoning behind this was that the king wanted to have a divorce. And, of course, the pope would not grant one because— the church does not grant divorces. Mm-hmm. So the thought was that if the king is now named as head of the church, the king can make those decisions for himself, mm-hmm. which worked very well till his chancellor said that he was not going to cooperate. Thomas More being the chancellor. Thomas More being the chancellor. And so over a long period of time, the chancellor at that time was kind of the combination between the chief of staff and prime minister, and it was a it was a quite important position in the royal household and in the government. Oh, you might say prime minister, secretary of state, mm-hmm. uh, chief of staff, all rolled into all one. All rolled into one. Yeah. And uh, the sad thing was that the king and Saint Thomas More were best of friends. That's right and had been for a long time. Mm-hmm. And this caused a major rift in their relationship. And yet, St. Thomas More was certain that the king would honor the friendship above all else. But he was proven wrong. Uh, his title was taken away. His possessions were taken away. And finally, he was imprisoned. Mm-hmm. And something that comes out in the 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 famous film a man for all seasons which is how many people know the story and it's it's a very good treatment of of the story excellent film um but what comes out so strongly is that i, th- I think if i'm recalling correctly st thomas more was the last important holdout who did not sign the act of supremacy is that correct? He was the last one or, or one of the very yeah, few? I believe he was the last holdout, but I'm not 100% yeah. th- certain. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say that. And it was because of his character and his position, partly, that he was chancellor, but also he eventually, had, like you said, the chancellor position was stripped from him, so he wasn't even the chancellor anymore. And all of these... Uh, persecutions were put down on St. Thomas More for not signing. But the reason why Henry wanted him to sign was because of his character. He was such a unimpeachable man that if he could, if that it was saying, it was like, it was just this sign that what the king was doing was not morally and ethically uh, you know, licit. And I think that's the main point of what happened there. Uh, And if we look around our culture, so much is made of how many people agree with what we're doing. You know, you have polls for everything. And it's always a question of, you know, the number. Mm -hmm. How many people say this is right? Mm -hmm. And this is a reminder Mm -hmm. that it isn't a question of how many. Mm -hmm. The question is always, is it right? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And the reason Henry wanted St. Thomas More to say it was right mm-hmm. is because he was so well respected mm-hmm. that people trusted that if he said it was right, yeah. that it really was. And I think it's important to remember that uh, King Henry VIII had been given the title of Defender of the Faith from the Pope because he had written a quite uh, well-reasoned treatise condemning Martin Luther, yes, condemning Lutheranism. Yes, and there's the irony. And so Henry was a Henry was a lover of of the, he he loved his faith. He knew his faith. He knew the importance of uh, the connection between church and state. He understood how uh, the realm, the health of the realm, was support was supported and strengthened by the the blessings and the strength of the the church. How they were in the medieval conception, those were, you know, interlinked, the legitimacy of both. And yet here he was in this crisis of not having an heir. And so he decides that, uh, well, he, he's going to make, make the case for divorce so he can marry, uh, Anne Boleyn, correct? Divorce Catherine of Aragon. Uh, and so he desperately wants to be seen as, continue to be seen as righteous, a good Christian ruler, a good Catholic ruler. And so Thomas More, standing up and saying, no, what you're doing is not within the bounds of the church, was incredibly embarrassing. It was a blot on his kingship, and he just he could not abide by it. And on top of that, the bishop was also on the side of Thomas More, and the king finally had him killed also. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, because, again, ultimately, we as Christians are called to say what is right or wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, it cannot be based on what is popular. It cannot be based on what important people say. It should be, and I think this is why the church emphasizes this holiday in that fortnight leading up to July 4th, a reminder that freedom is only freedom if it's true, mm-hmm. and so often we fail to understand that um, the truth always comes from God, mm-hmm. and if we do not live out our faith first and our Politics second, we are in danger of doing what Henry VIII wanted Thomas More to do, to say something is right that obviously is not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this really gets to the heart of what we mean when we, we say our, our politics need to be informed by our, our Catholic faith, our Catholic teaching, correct, Deacon? Exactly, because ultimately if we say we believe in God, that means we believe in everything he has taught. And if we believe in everything he has taught, that is then the foundation of every decision we make in our lives. And if it is not, then obviously something is more important to us mm-hmm. than that. Yeah, and I think that <clears throat> this is also foreboding a lesson for the times in which we live in that you mentioned. What did, what did the power that 
the powers that be at the time of St. Thomas's life, King Henry VIII, what did they start out doing to get him to bend? Well, they stripped him of his offices. They publicly shamed him. They uh, condemned him publicly. Friends of the family drifted away. Um, all of those good benefices of, that came along with his position were slowly taken away. Well, what do we see happening to people now who stand up for, say, the definition of marriage, the truth of uh, sexuality? They're shamed publicly. They're fired from their positions with their work the example of Brendan Ike with uh, Mozilla, for example, is one that comes to mind. Well, what ended up being done to St. Thomas More? He was ultimately imprisoned. He was then executed. And I think it's important to remember St. Thomas More's dying words. And I'm paraphrasing, but basically it was that I die the king's loyal servant. Yes. But God's first. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And this, again, is the emphasis of this whole idea of why Thomas More is a saint. Because if saints are the people we're supposed to be emulating, if saints are the people we're supposed to recognize as examples in our lives, there's no finer example, especially in our modern age, to follow than St. Thomas More. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well said. And I uh, want to continue on the notion of that fortnight of freedom that we're called to observe. Yes. Uh, the two weeks prior to July 4th and the emphasis that we should pray for our country, <laughs> that— uh, for those 14 days, each day emphasize something that we need to pray for, something that we need to change. And if we look around our country, there's lots of things that could be approved upon. It is still the greatest nation on earth, but there are always things that we can do to improve. And one of the things that we need improving is fighting for religious freedom, fighting for the truth of the things that the church teaches and fighting for more Christian behavior out of people who call themselves Christians, people who call themselves Christians, especially if involved in politics, mm -hmm. uh, because the people that lead our country are examples, whether they are aware of it or not. And I think a lot of the, behavior of people is based on what they see and hear on the news. And Certainly. One of the things we should pray for is civil discord, of course, uh, that we speak to each other with respect, that we recognize God in the other even when we disagree with the position that person is taking. And so as we celebrate this fortnight of freedom, especially today as we celebrate the 4th of July, emphasize the fact that... Uh, yeah, I, I would just jump in here and say Facebook and social media platforms are, I'm not condemning them wholesale, but 
you know, just to, just to ponder, don't try to have conversations about politics and religion on those platforms. Those aren't really the best places for them. Try to go out and try to have a cup of coffee with that family member that you're going to get into, into it with, or try to renew that relationship with them and start up by hearing what they have to say. And then asking questions about why they think what they think before you start, you know, reading them the riot act, so to speak. I, I just, I think that's where a lot of the anger and vitriol and angst is, is coming from because we're trying to do it in a medium that's not, it's not conducive to seeing Christ in the other person. That's just a thought. And I think it's well worth noting that we see a sign of congeniality when we do have a crisis, like when we had a member of Congress shot on the baseball field and everyone came together because we now see the other as a human being, as someone who can be hurt. And I think... That speaks to what you were talking about is the fact that we don't see that in Facebook. We don't see that in blogs. We don't see the other. It's just someone out there that I am disagreeing with. Right. And it's when we can look the other in the eye and see that our comments may be hurtful, that mm-hmm. we see that maybe we can rephrase that, that then we begin to look at having a civil conversation. Yeah, exactly. But I think you, your connection, what you made of uh, St. Thomas More's dying statement that works well with the Fortnite for Freedom, that we remain loyal citizens of the United States, but God's citizens of the heavenly city first. And the irony is the better citizens we are of the heavenly kingdom, the better citizens we will be of the state that we Pledge allegiance. Pledge allegiance to. And so it is always a good reminder that uh, God knows what he's doing. When God calls us to act in particular ways, do particular things, it is always in our best interest. We're going to take a short break. Uh, We will see you on the other side when we talk to Deacon Guadalupe Rodriguez from the Diocese of Austin about Project Stephen. We will be right back. Welcome back on this wonderful July 4th day. As promised, we are going to be talking to Deacon Guadalupe Rodriguez, the co-director of Diaconate Formation for the Diocese of Austin. Deacon Guadalupe, how are you? I am very well and excited to be talking about this beautiful, wonderful topic. Well, I'm looking forward to it, but before we get into the topic, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how'd you get to be a deacon? Excellent. Uh, one day in adoration, I was praying, and uh, I sensed the Lord speaking to my heart. And uh, I couldn't believe it, so I got up and left, got scared, and left. 
Uh, came back the next day, and I thought I heard the same thing, uh, not with an audible voice, but in the heart, something God was speaking um, in, in, in a very particular way to my heart. Um, I started praying about that. I finally got the courage to speak to my pastor, and uh, he said, oh, I had thought the same thing, <laughs> and thus began um, my discernment on uh, God's call in my life. It's a call within a call. Our first call, of course, is uh, to the married life, and then God will call, call us to a, a deeper call of serving Him in the church. Uh, take it you've been a cradle Catholic, that you've been a Catholic all your life? I have been a cradle Catholic all my life, and um, it's been a journey, a journey of uh, conversion and more conversion. And even this call of the diaconate is, is, a, is a deeper conversion, and that, that, that conversion continues um, uh, every day, in fact. Uh, every day God calls us to holiness, to perfection, and it's answering that call within a call um, from calling to be married to calling to the diaconate, and ultimately the call for everyone, which is a call to holiness. And um, it's beautiful. Um, he, he doesn't let us down. He, he just uh, fills us with grace as long as uh, we say yes. The wonderful thing is that you were open to actually listening to his call, even though you ran out the first time. But yes. <laughs> most of us, we try to tamp down those voices when they tell us that we should be moving in a direction we really don't want to go. And so it's wonderful that you recognize that call and follow through he um you know he's so god is so faithful with his children uh you know like any father uh when the child speaks or asks a question to the father the father will respond or the mother will respond and so god is that way uh for some men it's a call in their heart that they hear uh with the ears of the heart for others it's, it's through signs either um in their personal life, or through their spouse, or through their pastor, or other parishioners, saying, "Have you thought of the diaconate?" And um, it's it's a it's a call that is a blessing, uh, not only on the man's life but also on the family's life. Um, it's a call. Um, it's a public call uh, that, where we give witness, um, of course, of the diaconate, but also of what it means for an entire family to follow the Lord, very much like Abraham and Sarah, uh, Jacob and Rachel, uh, Joseph and Mary, where uh, God calls them from their normal state in life to a higher call, a deeper call of serving. It sounds like it's a call to a deeper level of commitment. We all should be committed to our faith, but sometimes... God calls us to deepen that commitment, to step a little further into the water. Yes, and I wish I could say that uh, that that call stops, but you know He continues to take us uh, to walk on water, uh, not in a literal sense, but in the sense of trusting Him. Um, uh, he allows us. Uh, uh, to have trials and tribulations and temptations, but uh, 
but for our growth. Uh, and uh, it's it's been such a beautiful journey that I'm happy to share it with everyone. Um, my, at my diocese, Diocese of Laredo, where I'm from originally, uh, there was no discernment process. Uh, we're blessed here in the Diocese of Austin. We have a discernment process. It's called Project Stephen, where once a month, on the third Thursday of the month, a man and his spouse are invited to come and pray and to speak to a deacon and his spouse about this call. Uh, and uh, we have had up to 60 men uh, join us. Other times it's 40, other times it's a smaller number. Um, we accept men into formation every three years, so the numbers fluctuate, but what we want to do is always have an open door uh, to someone who hears the Lord's call. How long has the diocese had this Project Stephen working? It's going on its fourth year. And we go through different phases. Um, right now, we're in the phase uh, where we're about two years away. Um, so we, what we're doing right now is going over the Vatican's document called the Basic Norms uh, for Diaconal Formation. Um, and that answers a lot of their first questions about who a deacon is, what he does. Then the second phase is later... Um, before being accepted into formation, we uh, have couples, a deacon and his spouse, give testimonies of how God called them, what signs God used, and what it is like, and the challenges and the blessings. And this part really helps a man in that final discernment if God is really calling him. Many of the men in Project Stephen, when they sit and hear the witness, they're like, Oh, that has happened to me. Oh, that, I can relate to that. Um, so that's uh, that's been a big blessing. Um, every three years, we have about 60 men applying. Most of them have gone through Project Stephen, and uh, it's, it's been a big blessing. It's set up uh, very much like Project Andrew, which is for single men discerning to the priesthood or uh, the other uh, Project Miriam, which is for single women discerning a religious vocation, uh, where souls with a common purpose can get together for fellowship, prayer, and discernment. How would you describe the ultimate goal of Project Stephen? Uh, it, it, the, the goal, the objective is, is to help a man discern if indeed God is calling him. And we have had men who attend Project Stephen, and once they understand who a deacon is and what he does and how that ministry takes place, uh, they, they thank us because then they realize, no, this is not really what God is calling me to. Um, and, of course, uh, others that can really relate to the testimony, to the documents of the church that God is calling them. And this call is, is so different for different people. Uh, I, I've heard of men give testimony how God called them in the confessional. The priest on the other side of the confessional said, have you ever thought of the diaconate? Uh, and there began the discernment. Um, God, it's a mystery. You know, when you look in Scripture, how he calls Matthew. Matthew is 
uh, taking in taxes, and God just walks by in procession with other with a multitude of people and just says, "Come, follow me." Um, or other times, uh, you know, like when Peter and John are fishing, "Come, follow me." Uh, you know, they're working, they're doing their work. Uh, so, it's it, God calls people in different ways. Um, sometimes, like uh, when Andrew calls Peter. Uh, 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 we we have found the Messiah. Just uh, different ways uh, that God calls us, and that's what Project Stephen is. The goal is to try to lay out the different ways in which God calls us. Um, w- another classic one is when God calls through the spouse. Um, that's one of our favorite ones because um, usually the spouse knows, and uh, the man is the last one to find out. Uh, and that's always beautiful because we always want a man whom the wife is sending. The wife is so sure of his love for her that she can share that love with the church because in being ordained to the diaconate, he does take on another bride, the church. On Sundays, he's going to be serving at the altar uh, or baptisms, and the wife has to be sure of that love where she can share that vocation with God and the church, the bride of Christ. Sounds like what you're saying is that it is much a discernment process for the women as well as the men, because they are such a huge part of this. Absolutely. Um, The saying at my home is, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So that's one of the signs that we look for, that the wife is happy, that the children are happy, that because God, when God calls a man into this vocation, It's not just him, but God in his mysterious wisdom prepares the whole family. Um, And, of course, we have had men in formation who were accepted, and then the wife discerns that it is not their call. Maybe um, there are other um, needs in the family from work to smaller children uh, where the wife discerns, honey, this is not the right time, and uh, the church absolutely listens to that, and we have had wives who step in and decide now is not the best time, and uh, of course, um, that's a beautiful way of discernment, Um, and sometimes they come back um, a a few years later, and the wife says, now is the time, now everything is ready, there's no more issues or taking care of grandmother or something like that, Um, so it's, it's it's such a beautiful, to see how God works is to be to be the fly on the wall, to be the witness of how the witness of how the gospel is carried out today in our world is beautiful. And I think that since the largest uh, number of these men coming into Project Stephen are married, it's important to remember that their primary vocation is always going to be their marriage. Absolutely, yes. Uh, the wife has to be taken care of, the children have to be taken care of, and that the church uses that as a sign. We even do home visits uh, as a way of discerning, um, you know, in Scripture uh, that a man has his, ho- that the household has to be in order, uh, that the house is in order. That's, that's part of the church's discernment. Um, however, we do have uh, men who are not married, who are in the diaconate, uh, and that is also possible. Um, that that is also a beautiful vocation. 
Uh, currently, we have two. Uh, one that will be ordained, God willing, a year and a half, and another who just started. And uh, that, too, is an interesting um, vocation. Uh, it's the same ordination. However, it is a deeper understanding um, because the man is able to dedicate himself completely to this new bride. The Vatican documents call it a, a nuptial effect that takes place at ordination, which is why they can't get married because at that moment they're consecrated, set apart forever. Uh, for the man who's married and his spouse passes, that is the reason why he can't get married. It's because there is a, a nuptial effect, a bridal effect at ordination where he takes on this new bride, the church. Um, and of course, uh, these men who are not married have to understand that they're going to live a celibate life. And, uh, and th that too is beautiful. How God gives the grace to that person uh, to live that life, uh, just being a witness of that is, uh, is beautiful. It's a, it's a blessing. But I would think that whole discernment process in part has to focus on communicating the importance of that vow of celibacy that comes with the diaconate, which most people don't know about. Yes. Um, what we do uh, is we set up some special spiritual directors, special mentors, uh, to help them understand this uh, new way of life. For the most part, what we've noticed is God is already preparing them. Most of these men have either been widowers or have never gotten married. Um, and, and they've lived already a, a life of celibacy for at least five or so years. And so um, how God prepares them is, is also... I think I would say a miracle in and of itself. Uh, it's it's not the biggest issue, the celibacy, when somebody is single. I think it's dealing, understanding uh, in the evening uh, how they're going to deal with loneliness, what we would call loneliness, and others would call just being with the Lord. Um, and it's taking the men through that aspect of their lives uh, where not to look at it as loneliness, but how else can I serve the bride, either through worship or through uh, the poor? Um, so yes, that's a, it's a, a beautiful vocation. It sounds like part of that discernment process is learning to focus our attention in different directions other than the self, because especially the call to celibacy, but also just the dedication to the church, to the people that are not in the church, to the people on the uh, fringes. It's looking for ways that I can move beyond myself towards how do I serve God. Yes, that's one of the, uh, the wonderful things that Pope Francis has brought to light is the idea that as Christians uh, that we're called uh, to go out and evangelize the world, uh, and that includes the peripheries, the outer boundaries, um, to the least of these. Now, in the life of the deacon and his discernment uh, while in formation, 
that takes an even deeper calling and understanding because, as you know, in Acts, when they're first, uh, the deacons first brought forth, it's because there is a need to take care of the orphans and the widows. And uh, so the Holy Spirit inspires the apostles to ordain seven men filled with the Holy Spirit. And um, it's that filled with the Holy Spirit discernment that the, the church still uses. We uh, still want men who are filled with the Holy Spirit uh, because when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you can recognize Jesus in the peripheries, in the outer boundaries, in the distressing disguise of the poor. Um, it is, uh, when our men are first in formation, it is a challenge uh, because most of the time, the men that come to us, not all the time, but I would say a good 60%, they're used to doing only parish work. They don't have the understanding that a deacon has a deeper, further call to go to the peripheries to find uh, the stranger, uh, the naked, the imprisoned, um, all those uh, that Jesus mentions when he returns, I was hungry, I was naked. Uh, I was a stranger. Those in particular are the specific and special calling of a man in formation and, of course, of the ordained. Um, there's three dimensions that the popes have spoken about. Christ, uh, the in catechism, they use it the, for the bishop, the agant, and for the priest, they use the word head, capitas, and then for the deacon, the dimension of Christ the servant. And it's that dimension that Jesus washes the feet of the apostles that we're called to serve the least of these. And it's that's the aspect that we um, are looking for in a man in formation, that he's willing to leave the parish, go out, find the lost sheep, and then return back to the altar. Uh, not just stay out in the peripheries, but come back. Um, one of the beautiful aspects that you see that is... Um, at Mass, how the deacon uh, says, Lord, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. He does the intercessions because he knows the cry of the poor uh, firsthand. Uh, so it, it's, a, it's just such a beautiful vocation to live out that dimension of Christ, the servant. How do you try to introduce this new way of looking at the world in Project Stephen? Is there a specific uh, part of the program that addresses this, or do you wait for them to be in formation before you sink them deeper into that realization? Uh, right now, we basically just explain uh, the different aspects of formation uh, so that they understand uh, what their true calling is, if they say yes to the Lord, if they give their fiat. Um, but it's actually once they're in formation, um, when Jesus says uh, to go out and proclaim the gospel, the kingdom of God, take no walking stick, no money bag uh, for the journey. And so one of the things that the men in formation in their first year that they encounter is uh, we live out Jesus' words to go out um, into the world and proclaim the kingdom of God with no money bag, no walking stick, no sandals. Um, so we make him homeless for three days, Friday through Sunday, 
so that they can relate to the poor so that when they are ordained, they will understand what it is to be vulnerable like the poorest of the poor. And many many of our men in formation that first year have, have a deep conversion because sometimes um, we have this aspect of looking at the poor or the homeless. Well, you know, he's homeless because uh, he's a drunk or he's an addict or because he didn't take care of his money or he, he's lazy, etc. But once we realize what it is like to be totally vulnerable and poor, um, the men have a deep conversion and understanding of the poor. Um, the deepest call for the deacon is just to to love and serve the poor and to br- bring him, uh, as Jesus says, he puts him on his bosom and brings him to the Father. Sounds like that one of the important conversions is to stop looking at people as classes and look at them as individuals, as children of God. Yes. Um, I think uh, to put a finer point on that, that's a beautiful, beautiful thought, is to see how much God loves them, to see how they're beloved, to see that they are just as important to the Father as we are, that... Um, that God's heart aches for that man in prison, for that immigrant, for that homeless, for that uh, uh, pregnant mother uh, walking to an abortion clinic, all those lost sheep, that God's heart aches for those souls, and that we are to recognize that ache and that we are to be his hands and feet here, and uh, when that occurs, when we see how much God loves them, how they too are beloved, how they too are his delight, then um, there is, uh, for lack of a better word, magic in the world. There is uh, uh, joy. There is uh, uh, ecstasy out of love. Where do you meet with the men in Project Stephen? We meet at the Diocese of Austin, which is located at 6225 Highway 290 East, 6225 Highway 290 East in Austin. It's the pastoral center, um, and we meet at the JP2 room, which is the main room. Um, We have both an English and Spanish discernment um, team who helps us so if a man is only Spanish-speaking, we have somebody that can um, help them. And same thing with English. Um, occasionally, Bishop will come and visit. He's come and visited in the past. And he gives us uh, a beautiful um, lecture on who a deacon is. And uh, it's just to hear the bishop uh, give an explanation on the deacon is always beautiful and uh, wonderful. He reminds us of, he, the last time he was here, he reminded us of Stephen. He says, don't forget the first deacon, uh, how the, that first deacon went out into the streets to preach. Uh, it's just a, a reminder to the whole church. Well, as long as he doesn't mention what happened to Stephen after he did that, that may scare a few of them away. <laughs> Actually... <laughs> To be completely honest, he did mention, and I thought it was beautiful because sometimes it's good to just give the truth. Uh, 
you know, um, we're all called to die to ourself. Uh, we're all called to this, uh, maybe, maybe not in America, uh, to a red martyrdom, but surely a white martyrdom. Uh, uh, when Jesus says um, tax collectors and prostitutes are taking heaven by violence, um, and it speaks of this, what he's talking about is this white martyrdom uh, that you see in the life of Therese, you see in the life of St. Faustina, uh, where they saw their faults and they offered it up little by little. Uh, and it's, it's just a, it's a, a beautiful way of the saints uh, to discover uh, the little way of becoming a saint. If I'm listening to this program today and you've piqued my interest and I think I might want to explore this, what should I do? Uh, either call us, 512-949-2410 or 512-949-2411, and we'll gladly speak to you about this beautiful and joyful call, or you can email us. Um, you go to the Diocese of Austin, and our email is there, uh, guadalupe-rodriguez at austindiocese.org, or Deacon Dan, Deacon, uh, I'm sorry, Dan Lupo, dan-lupo at austindiocese.org, um, and we can give you more information. Um, the main thing that we want to share is the joy that we have found in this call, the freedom that we have found in this call, the love that we have found in this call. It's so exciting that uh, sometimes uh, our wife has to uh, put the brakes on us because uh, we're just so in love with this call. It's so beautiful. Uh, it's it's uh, beyond our wildest imagination. Uh, the fulfillment of all our desires is is in this call. Uh, and, of course, it's, it's a joy to the whole family, too, and a blessing. What would you say is the role of the parish in this discernment process? Ah, beautiful. That's a great question. So it's several. I would say, first of all, it's to help the man uh, discern um, uh, by communicating with the man and with the pastor. Uh, we've had parishioners uh, tell us how what a suitable uh, person this would make for the diaconate, um, also to pray for the man, um, for his call. Uh, there is a lot of prayer needed, of course. When a man is going to have this call, which is so beautiful, which is going to save so many souls, of course the enemy will have his hand in it too to try to prevent him. So prayer is needed. And finally, the part that parish also takes place is before ordination, uh, the bishop will ask, um, uh, if if the people of the parish, the people are calling him forth, uh, the, the people of the parish ultimately call forth this man because they see something different. And, of course, it's ultimately the church who discerns the call uh, through the bishop and our office and a committee. Um, but it's first the people uh, who call forth this man. <laughs> In your opinion, how would you describe 
why the church needs more deacons. Ah, that's beautiful. I think the church um, had deacons at the beginning for the first five centuries, and then sporadically on and off, like through uh, St. Francis of Assisi, who was a deacon. Um, But the permanent diaconate just came back um, after Vatican II. And I would say for two reasons. One is to show the dimension of Christ the servant. I think it's very much needed in today's world. Um, And within that, the second reason is to go in search of the lost sheep. I would say that the main primary role, uh, besides uh, showing Christ the servant on the altar, the second role is to go and find the lost sheep and to put him on his chest, as Isaiah speaks about the good shepherd who puts his sheep on his bosom, and to bring him back to the Father. I would say showing those two dimensions is the main reason why the church has brought back the diaconate. You said that uh, there's a group of men right now preparing for ordination in about a year and a half, God willing, and you have another group in formation that's going to follow behind them? We do. So we currently, um, we just ordained a class in November, 17 men, uh, among them a great deacon, Michael Beauvais, um, from College Station, whom we're speaking to right now. Um, but we have also another four, 54 men in formation. Um, one of them, 33 of them will be ordained in a year and a half. And then um, after that, we'll have 22 uh, that just started, in, and they'll be ordained in four and a half years. So 33 will be ordained in a year and a half, and 22 in four and a half years. We always have two classes going since we begin formation every three years. Now, the process takes about five years of formation, and Project Stephen may take three years before that. That's a big commitment for a man to make. It is. It is. And I would say it's, it's, it's very wise of the church. Um, there is a new—when the man is ordained— um, a new man is birthed. The old man dies. Uh, you see that in the ordination where the man goes prostrate that the, and a new man rises. And it takes that many years uh, for the church uh, to form this new man uh, through many yeses. And one of the ways is, that takes place is the man's prayer life. Uh, the journey that God takes him through. Uh, we often see Jesus going up to the mountain to pray, to be with the Father. And this man take this journey uh, up the mountain uh, through those three years in Project Stephen, uh, occasionally going up the mountain. And then once they're in formation, how God calls them up that mountain to be with him, to see the face of the Father so that they can see uh his face in the poorest of the poor. Very well put. 
Now, if you had 30 seconds to tell a man why he should explore a call to vocation, be it to the priesthood or the diaconate or even a woman to religious life, what would you say? I would say, I would quote Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa has a beautiful quote. She said, when God is calling someone, whether it's to the religious life as a sister or a priest or a deacon, Mother Teresa would say this. She she would say, that person knows. In the heart of his heart, that person knows. And somebody listening right now, um, you know that there's something special about you, and you owe it to yourself, to God, to the church, to the people, to go and discern, to go make a retreat, attend Project Rachel, Project Andrew, Project Miriam, or uh, Project Stephen, to go discern if God is calling you. It's a slow process. Notice how Jesus uh, calls Peter and John. Uh, first, they just go stay with him, and their first question is, Master, where do you stay? And then they return back to John the Baptist, uh, return back to fishing, and how God is a gentle shepherd that gently calls his sheep. But uh, we just have to be open to see the signs and to give our fiat like Mary did. I am the handmaid of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, she said. And uh, he will do the rest. We just, our part is to respond, and to pray, and discern. Amen. Thank you very much, Deacon Guadalupe. I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Next week, Gene Wilhelm will be your host on the Red Sea Roundup. Remember to tune in for that. Until then, when calculating the many ways you might share your time, talents, and treasure with the people of God, always round up. <laughs>